0: Hey, I'm stuck in the airport. Fun? I've been here since, like, so long. <laughs> Feels like home. Right, yeah. So I just want you to know I'm recording this phone call. Okay. Was it for the fun? Yes. Okay. So some crazy shit is happening. <laughs> okay. What's up? So, do you remember the case that we found a couple of weeks ago about Yeah. And then I had to go up to the courthouse all those times and pull. they pulled all that microphone for me? Yeah, ma'am. Um, well, uh, okay, I called and he was like, you definitely cannot release that information. Why? Is it viable? Super duper viable. Oh, shit. Are you for real? yeah. Yep. yep. Kind of freaking out. Are you, are you panicking in a good way or a bad way? Holy shit. No, I think it's in a good way.
1: Okay. So we definitely can't release
0: No. We cannot. Okay. We have to get our legal strategy in order. Yeah. Okay. No,
2: that makes sense.
0: Okay, cool. Oh my god, dude, this is the break we wanted, though. This is why we're doing this. Oh shit, okay, here we go, dude. Okay, I'll talk to you soon. right, bye. Bye.
3: If you're just tuning in, I suggest you go back and start listening from Chapter 1. Before we start, a content warning. This episode contains graphic accounts of gun violence as well as domestic and sexual violence. Last week we told you that that was going to be part two of episode four it was actually episode five and this is episode six of panic
2: button i'll say we've just had some things happen that caused us to have to reorganize so appreciate your patience for following along with us
3: on today's episode we'll show you the prosecution's side and their evidence this is panic button episode six ninja in the night part one (laughs) I'm your co-host, Colleen McCarty.
2: And I'm Leslie Briggs.
3: A lot of people have been asking us, how is this possible? How is it possible that April was even charged, let alone convicted by a jury? From the outside, it seems ludicrous knowing everything that we know now. The answer is probably a lot more depressing than you would like to hear. It was easy. It was incredibly easy for the state to take seemingly innocuous facts, mixed with things April had already admitted to, and make her look like a cold-blooded murderer. The state does this every day in thousands of cases, some where the defendants are guilty, and some where the defendants are not. Even though everyone knows the defendant is presumed innocent, most lay people are going to assume that you didn't make your way to the defendant's table by being 100% innocent. In most cases, jurors make the inferences that the state asks them to make, and they're going to shun the inferences that the defendant asks them to make. That being said, there are decidedly bad facts in April's case that made it easier to get a conviction for first-degree murder. In my opinion, each of those facts has a reasonable explanation, considering her state of mind. April's defense did not do a good job of rebutting the damaging facts and offering alternative explanations. In addition, so much of her evidence was kept out that you can almost not blame the jury for deciding to convict.
2: So one of the things that really frustrates me most when reading the trial transcripts is how much of the state's case is just reiterating and restating facts that corroborate April's version of the events. So essentially a good defense attorney would have been using the state's witnesses to bolster their case and the veracity of their client. Instead, Early defense efforts on uh, April's behalf focus on her competency. And I think that there's a there's some debate about whether this was the right move or not. And I mean, Colleen, do you have thoughts on the effect of this competency hearing and the, the process there? And, and, you know, how did it play into the overall defense strategy?
3: Yeah, so I think in a case like this, when you have somebody who is struggling with mental health diagnoses, valid or not valid... Um it would be sort of like a covering all of your bases move to go ahead and move for a competency assessment to make sure that the person is competent to stand trial. Uh, but what you're what you're risking when you do that is that she is competent to stand trial and that that is going to come in um ultimately, and the state can use any of the evidence that's in there in the competency assessment against her. And ultimately that is what happens
2: right. and we'll we're gonna kind of talk through all of that and there it also um is another touch point for a faulty assessment of her mental health with this idea that she was bipolar and she had borderline personality disorder, which are mis- she's misdiagnosed um early on at Parkside. And we're gonna talk in, in detail about that. But this report is is operating from a, a baseline of like that's credible and correct information. And I can rely on that in my assessment of her. And it does not wind up aiding her efforts in my opinion
3: yeah and like you kind of see how her defense is trying to play off some of the mental illness as a reason for her shooting terry but when they do that they are kind of shooting themselves in the foot a little bit because it strays away from the narrative that she was perfectly capable and intelligent person who was just defending herself. It's like, well, is she crazy and she shot him because she was on drugs or is she a perfectly capable person who's been abused for two years and is fighting back? Which one is it? You can't be both.
2: Right. And when we get to the defense defense's case next week, we're going to look in detail at, at, at what her expert had to say on that issue and how it did or did not aid in her defense. Um, and, and you could, you're going to see, I think, how the jury could get confused. But so when they do this competency hearing, um, it's a Dr. Cooper that does the hearing. And we talked a little bit about him last time during um, the the stories. But what he writes in his report is, quote, By observation, the defendant presented as a very slender white female with medium brown hair. She wore glasses for the interview. She was alert and oriented times three. She was very outgoing and verbose during the interview. Her speech was rapid, though she spoke coherently, and her thoughts were goal-directed. I'll just interject here that everyone who comes into contact with April, from the same nurses, Dr. Cooper, the police officers, she's speaking rapidly. She's talking quickly. This is, and Dr. Cooper is not even with her in the aftermath of, of the shooting. This is um, several months later. So this is a April's natural manner of speaking is quick. So when she's got adrenaline flowing, when she's upset, can you, it's going to be turned up to 11. So she did not appear to be suspicious of this examiner. And she denied experiencing any thoughts of being persecuted by others or being mistreated by jail personnel. She also did not display any grandiose thinking. She denied any history of hallucinations. Her mood did appear to be somewhat inappropriately bright, given the circumstances, though she seemed to indicate confidence that there would be a positive outcome to her case. She reported she is sleeping well, has a good appetite, and is not feeling significantly depressed. She did not feel that the lithium she is taking is having any significant effect. She admitted to a recent history of drug abuse, though she appeared to minimize this to some degree. She appears to be of at least average intellectual ability. Her present insight into her mental disorder appears to be limited, though she appears to have adequate insight into her present legal situation. Her judgment appears to be adequate. The report continues. The one reservation I have about this defendant's functioning is that she does appear to be slightly manic at this time. While this does not appear to significantly impair her ability to assist counsel now, It is possible that under the pressure of a trial, her mental condition could deteriorate to the extent that her judgment may become impaired. I would recommend that her attorneys closely monitor her condition and that if she shows future signs of decompensation, she be referred for a further assessment of her competency.
3: The standard for competency to stand trial is pretty low. Essentially, you need to be able to understand the charges against you, and you need to be able to aid in your own defense, and that means answering questions from your attorneys and helping to connect um, them to witnesses. There's no question that April was competent to stand trial. She had been using meth for about six months prior to that, and she was running her own prosthetics clinic before that. She was essentially designing cutting-edge prosthetic limbs. She has not decompensated so much in her life mentally that she would meet the standard for incompetence. Introducing this report and the question of April's competency is an understandable choice. The defense was going to have to deal with the fact that she had been taken to Parkside and ESH and that she had gone AWOL from 12 and 12 and from Parkside. However, questioning her competency comes at a great cost later in the trial. April was found competent and this report ends up coming in and giving the state a foothold in this narrative about her being a crazy ex-girlfriend.
2: I just want to interject quickly that what sucks about this, and we've spoken to several um, domestic violence experts and you're, you're going to hear from them in another episode, but one of the things that I think really shines through from what we learned from them is that this is all, everything that's happening re- with regard to her mental health is predicated on faulty information. like it she was not bipolar. She is not bipolar today. She's not in treatment for that. She was traumatized period, point blank. She had
3: PTSD and we actually learned recently that it's a new um, new ish best practice for anyone who works with victims of domestic violence, whether they be child welfare advocates or um, any other type of vic- victims services, that they are instructed not to refer victims of domestic violence for mental health assessment because there are several questions in a mental health assessment that will make you sound crazy if you are a victim of of intimate terrorism. Like for example, is someone following you? Do you think someone is following you? If the answer to that question is legitimately yes, and you answer it yes. It's going to show up on that assessment as you have schizoaffective disorder
2: Right. And that's exactly what happened to April. And we're going to talk about that in a couple episodes.
3: As we mentioned in an earlier episode, D.A. Tim Harris uses a false statement from Dr. Cooper's report about April being admitted to St. John's as a teenager, stating she was admitted for drug abuse when she actually was kept for a few days due to anorexia. This begins to lay the groundwork for D.A. Harris to suggest that April's been a lifelong drug addict desperate for her fix. The competency question that April's attorneys introduced allows the prosecution to seize on a narrative of crazy, unstable, delusional, and psychotic, a woman who continued to engage and pursue Terry Carlton to get access to his money and drugs. Here's Tim Harris, the district attorney's opening statement at trial. April Rose Wilkins on or about April 28, 1998 in Tulsa County, State of Oklahoma, and within the jurisdiction of this court, did commit the crime of murder in the first degree, a felony by unlawfully, feloniously, willfully, and with malice aforethought, without authority of law, affect the death of Terry Carlton by shooting and then thereby inflicting certain mortal wounds in the body of said Terry Carlton. From which those mortal wounds the same, Terry Carlton did languish and die on the 28th day of April 1998, contrary to the form of the statutes in such cases made and provided and against the peace and dignity of the state. That was signed by the DA at the time who filed the information, Charles L. Richardson and seconded by Assistant District Attorney, Rebecca Brett Nightingale, who's there trying the case. Harris goes on, to the charge of murder in the first degree, April Rose Wilkins, the defendant in this case has entered a formal plea of not guilty. Almost a year ago this month, on the corner of 38th and Lewis, on the southwest corner, lived Terry Carleton, 2272 East 38th Street in the city and county of Tulsa. Sometime between 3 a.m. and 929 a.m., the defendant April Rose Wilkins and Terry Carlton were in the basement. You'll be able to see these exhibits throughout the trial, so you can see it's a diagram. And I just want to note for the listeners that we are going to put the diagrams that D.A. Harris uses in his opening statement in the show notes. The middle diagram is the ground floor coming in the front entrance, going forward to get down the stairs, going up to get to the second floor. We will be referring to these, and you will see them at closer view. You can take a look at those during the opening statements, the statements of counsel, and become more familiar with them. They become very important for your orientation of where this murder occurred. Bang. Bang, 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 bang. Eight times. The evidence will show the defendant shot Terry Carlton with a Beretta 22, his gun. The state of Oklahoma is going to prove to you that deliberately with malice aforethought, took his gun from the nightstand of his bed and murdered him in his own basement. How did we get there? Well, that's the story which will unfold before you this week, that we will prove the elements of murder in the first degree. Yes, there's lots to pay attention to, and the state of Oklahoma believes that money, debt, drugs, and emotions. You put all those together in the equation and the state of Oklahoma believes it spells murder in the first degree. Terry Carlton was well off. He was the son of Don Carlton, a successful businessman here in Tulsa. He had lots of money. He lived in a beautiful home just outside of Ranch Acres here in Tulsa. He met April about two and a half years earlier before his death and they started a relationship. She came into the car dealership, wanted to buy a car and they met. Things began to happen. Yeah, it's no question and you'll hear about it. There was a lot of drug use. Terry Carlton likes drugs. You're going to find out that he grew psychedelic mushrooms in his attic and grew other mushrooms and became part of a club to be able to do so. He was a gun collector. You're going to see that he enjoyed all kinds of guns, rifles, handguns, mostly rifles at his home. You'll also see that there was money involved and debt. In fact, at one time, The evidence will show the defendant and terry carlton were engaged to be married a ring had been exchanged and there was ten thousand dollars in a lawsuit in which terry carlton wanted his ring back after the relationship faded you're also going to find that there was debt in a business snyder prosthetics that the defendant inherited and bought excuse me bought from her parents and that due to that relationship and drug habit drove that into the ground did not pay her bills And there was an outstanding lawsuit hanging over her head there. The drugs that were used were not just recreational. It was abuse, intravenous drug abuse, methamphetamine, known as crank, morphine, amphetamine, crushed up, heated, and shot into the veins of both defendant's arms and Terry Carlton's arms. Ladies and gentlemen, you're going to find that these three items combined with the emotions in this case of their relationship that was had extreme highs and lows. The state of Oklahoma is going to prove to you that this relationship turned mutually combative on many, many occasions. But the state will also show you that this was a relationship in which the defendant reaped the benefits of the lifestyle that Terry Carleton was able to live. Flights to Rome, trips to Greece, Jamaica, Cozumel, other trips in which they lived the lifestyle that somehow we all think is so glorious.
2: The state of Oklahoma is going to prove to you that in the hours before the death of Terry Carlton, the defendant had something in her mind. You're going to hear statements that she wanted to go over to his house and make peace. The state of Oklahoma is going to prove to you that the hours before the victim's death, Terry Carlton, he had talked to Robert Martin, a friend of his, long distance to Dallas, Texas. He had already figured out that the relationship was over between himself and the defendant. He had gone up to Eastern State Hospital in Veneta, where she was a patient. In fact, she was up there. In the three days out of the five that she was up there, he went up to visit her. On the Sunday, the 26th, he went up there and they had an argument. She told him while he was up there that it was over. Their relationship was through. She loved someone else. There was certainly a verbal altercation and a confrontation over that. Terry didn't want to hear that news, but came home talked to Robert Martin long distance, called him in Dallas and said, when she gets out, I'm not going up to get her. It's over. Well, she was brought down by vehicle, the 12 and 12, a drug rehab unit here on East Skelly drive here in Tulsa to finish her drug treatment program and her other mental health counseling. And she went AWOL from the program on Monday, the 27th from that status of being AWOL. You're going to hear she went home. Sometime late Monday morning, she went out to the Executive Inn out east of town here. Officer Massick is going to tell you she responded to a call of a woman beating on a car. Disturbance call. She goes out to the scene, finds a white Corvette with an elbow pad, something that would protect your elbows if you were out rollerblading, and two sets of keys. The only person around the area is the defendant. It's late. It's 1.28 in the morning. She receives information from the defendant that the defendant had spent all of her money to get a taxi to get out there to visit another boyfriend that supposedly had a room at the executive inn and wouldn't let her in. So the conversation goes on between Officer Massick and the defendant and Officer Massick decides she's dressed in black, got black leggings on, a black tight long sleeve top and a black vest, like a biking vest with three holes in the back like water bottles and a pocket in the front. And that with rollerblades on, she gives the defendant a ride home to 35th Street, the 1300 block of 35th Street where she lives. Drops her off, has no idea what's going to ensue. The defendant, being restless, we know, says that she goes out rollerblading for a certain period of time and then decides in the early morning hours to walk over to Terry Carlton's house on the corner of 38th and Lewis. Walks over there sometime between 3 and 4 o'clock in the morning. We know because she told us. She bangs on the door. Terry Carlton, according to her statement, comes to the door armed with a twenty two Beretta semi-automatic handgun. Not knowing who it is when he comes to the door, realizes it's his ex-girlfriend and allows her to go inside. Now, she tells Officer Ken Makinson that between three and four o'clock in the morning, he wanted to go upstairs and have sex. It's early, he wants to go back to bed. Somehow, she fends that off and convinces him, no, let's not go upstairs and have sex. Let's go downstairs in the basement. Let's do some drugs. At that point in time, they cook up their apparatus, some methamphetamine. The defendant knows how to do it because she's done it before, says to the police, I made myself a weak one. She says the victim, Terry Carlton, cooks up what she thinks to be black tar heroin. They do those drugs. They both intravenously inject those drugs in the basement, and then sometime, close in time, Now he wants to go upstairs and have sex. No, don't wanna have sex. They banter back and forth. She finally gives in. She says he had a violent nature in the past. Goes upstairs, something happens. She says there's a physical altercation which leads to, she says, a beating on her head, a cracking of her neck, and she says she's raped. I believe though, the first officer she talks to, she says she has sexual intercourse. It's not until she gets to the station and talks to Detective Ken Makinson that she used the word rape. Whatever, the sex ensued and they go downstairs. The gun is put up by the victim, Terry Carlton in the nightstand next to the bed. You'll see photographs of all this. It's in the nightstand. They go back downstairs. Terry's going to do some more drugs. Harris continues. The defendant tells police
3: he does another load or whatever you call it, cooks it up of heroin, makes her one that she doesn't do. By her statement to the police, she says she shoots it into the ground. He does it. She tells him, I want to go to the bathroom. I'm going to go upstairs. Besides that, where's the phone? Goes up from the basement to the ground floor, passes a bathroom on the ground floor, goes upstairs to the second floor. There's a bathroom up there. The state of Oklahoma is going to be able to prove to you there's also a gun up there. At that point, She takes the 22 Beretta semi-automatic and says, quote, I checked it, quote, to make sure it was loaded and ready to go. This is a woman the state of Oklahoma is going to prove to you is not unfamiliar with firearms. In fact, you're going to hear that she had practiced with a national pistol champion, Mike Sexton, of the Oklahoma Highway Patrol and has shot over 650 rounds in a semi-automatic and considers herself a pretty good shot. She takes the gun. Being right-handed, she puts it behind her waist in one of the pockets of her biking vest, and she goes back downstairs, but not until she took the victim's car keys, his truck keys, to a red blazer that was sitting in the driveway, two credit cards, one platinum, a platinum card, a Visa platinum card, and a gold American Express card of Terry Carleton, $80 in cash, plus her own little rig set up to be able to cook drugs and punch holes in your arm so you can do drugs and a glasses case among other personal belongings in a black backpack. She places the black backpack by the basement door, the basement door where the backpack was found by officer John Harris, leading to the entrance to the backyard. The downstairs is divided in two large rectangular rooms with only one entrance going in there. This is the only steps going up and going down. She sets the backpack by the back door, comes back through to where she says Terry Carlton is. While she gets down there, She says he becomes verbally aggressive with her, and she believes he is going to get violent. During some period of time, according to her statement, she says while she has a gun in her back-carrying area, that she allows him to put handcuffs on her. That while the handcuffs are on her, he's over by a table where the drugs were being cooked up and prepared. And she says, quote, I had made up my mind if he turned around with an angry look on his face, I was going to shoot him. I decided to help myself. I wanted to be comfortable. The defendant says, the defendant, and here he actually means the victim, she says, turns around with an angry look on his face. She demonstrated for two of the officers with her hands in front of her that she reached around, grabbed the gun in her right hand, and took somewhat of a modified weaver position, left hand on the bottom, right hand around, then started shooting. The blood started coming from his neck, where you're going to hear from Dr. DiStefano that she shot, severed his spinal cord, and he dropped to the ground. By the defendant's own statement, while he's laying on the ground before she shoots him the seven more times, he asks her to get an ambulance and tells her he's paralyzed. At that time, the defendant goes up and shoots the defendant again. He means the victim again. Even the greats make mistakes, eh, Tim?
1: sorry
3: <laughs> at that time the defendant goes up and shoots the defendant again he means the victim seven more times on the left side of the head he has an entrance wound right in front of his ear he has one directly below the earlobe on the left side and a cluster of four about oh cheekbone down the jaw one interesting shot is he has what's characterized by the medical examiner as a defensive wound in his left hand he caught one of the projectiles of the twenty two going right in underneath his left finger in the mostly meaty part of the knuckle, traveling over and lodging somewhere right below the index finger. Those shots eventually caused the victim Terry Carlton to languish and die on the basement of his floor on the morning of February, or wait, April 28th, excuse me, 1998. Some time passes, and we only know from what the defendant told police happened next, but we know that she pointed the gun at the victim, Terry Carlton, from three feet away and squeezed off the first shot. Now she believes, by her statement, that this first shot hit him in the neck, and the reason she believes that is she saw blood, she stayed there for quite a while, and she didn't call the police. In fact, at some point in time, she took a brightly colored striped Mexican rug and covered Terry's body up with it. While she was at Mr. Carlton's residence sometime that morning, the telephone rings. It actually happens to be an old high school friend that used to work with her as a manager of Snyder Prosthetics that she owned, checking on her welfare at Eastern State Hospital, calling Terry Carlton to obtain the information to find out how the defendant was doing. The defendant calmly talked to her for a number of minutes in this phone conversation and then finally said, I shot Terry, he's dead. Carrie Gaston, or Carrie Howard, Didn't believe it. Yeah, sure. Uh Uh-huh. Pause. No, I shot him. He's dead. Some other information ensues between the two of them, and the defendant tells Carrie Gaston, Carrie Howard, married name, don't call the police. Carrie gets off the phone and talks to her husband. She'll relay to you based on the content of the discussion with her husband. She realized she only had one option, and that was, in the event that all this was true and Terry Carlton was still alive, she had to call 911. From Kiefer, Oklahoma, she calls 911, calls a dispatcher. The dispatcher dispatches Tulsa police to the scene. You're going to hear from a number of officers. Officer Gann, Officer Lawson, Officer Fadem, Officer Forrester. Get to their residence, and they all know it's a shooting. They'll tell you for their own personal safety and not knowing what the condition is that they don't just walk up the steps and knock on the door, that they converge from other angles on the house, for their personal safety, looking in windows, they end up seeing the defendant walking around in the hallway, the front hallway area, through the windows, along the side of the house in this area. But they finally go up to the door. The defendant meets them. They tell her, we're responding to the shooting call that had come in from a third party. Her statement is, I shot him. He's in the basement. At that period of time, Officer Lawson and Officer Gann go downstairs while leaving the defendant with Officer Laura Fadum.
2: Laura Fadon will testify she got there at approximately 9.29 in the morning, April 28, 1998. And at 9.35, she Mirandized her and gave her her rights under the Miranda decision. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say will be used against you in a court of law. If you can't afford a lawyer, one will be appointed for you. Do you understand all these rights? Do you wish to waive these rights and speak to us, such and such? You've all seen it. At that time, without making any inquiry of the defendant, she makes a voluntary statement. She's just a chatterbox. She's got a story to tell and she begins to tell it to Officer Fadum. You're gonna hear about the combat training course that she had, the fact that she knew he had called for an ambulance and that he said he was paralyzed, that she packed up the backpack with the money, the credit cards, the truck keys, the rig to shoot drugs, and other personal items. The state of Oklahoma is going to prove to you not only does she make a statement to Officer Fathom, that you'll be able to tell that if she really wanted to get away, she had multiple opportunities to leave that home. When she first gets there, she goes to the basement. When they come upstairs, she could have walked out the front door. To get upstairs, you have to pass the front door. Came downstairs, went to the basement. She goes upstairs by herself, leaving the victim, Terry Carlton, in the basement. She could have walked out the front door at that point in time. She didn't. She went upstairs. She retrieved a firearm. She hid it on her body. She placed her backpack at a convenient position in the event that she had to run and went back downstairs. Ladies and gentlemen, the state of Oklahoma is going to call the necessary witnesses to prove to you, and there will be no contention that this was an Ozzy and Harriet type relationship. That it was mutually combative. That during the tenure and time that they were together, there was physical threats and violence. In fact, the state of Oklahoma will prove to you to show the defendant's intent that on another occasion, in fact, specifically on April 11th of 1998, she and Terry were at Terry's home, got into an argument. She pulled a gun from her own purse, put it to the head of Terry Carlton and pulled the trigger. The gun did not go off. They were both under the influence of crank. They were both cranking. The victim, Terry Carlton, in his high state, told the defendant that he was God and he was Satan and that she believed it because she had a chambered round in her gun, stuck it to his head, and it didn't go off. In response to a 911 call to come to that residence, both Terry Carlton and the defendant were taken to Parkside Psychiatric Hospital here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You're going to see pictures of guns. You're going to probably see pictures of mushrooms. You're going to see alleged pictures of her house being trashed by the victim in this case you're also going to see pictures of where the defendant was lying in relation to the statement of the defendant. Again, even Tim Harris seems to have a little Freudian slip going on by referring to Terry Carlton as the defendant three different times in his opening statement. Pay close attention to where the furniture is, where the body is found, the condition of the body. We'll have Roy Heim, a blood spatter expert, come talk to you about the condition of Mr. Carlton laying on the basement floor and what he's able to determine from the blood droplets and how they fly up and fall down on the victim's body. His condition and that he did not die immediately and was able to move at least a portion of his body as he languished and died on that Tuesday morning. Ladies and gentlemen, the state of Oklahoma will prove to you beyond any reasonable doubt that the defendant with malice aforethought on April 28th, 1998, here in the County of Tulsa shot, killed and murdered Terry Carlton at his residence. And then we will ask you to punish her accordingly under the law for that murder in the first degree. Thank you. Do you want to do really quick 30 seconds of themes you thought were emerging there?
3: So the themes I think that are beginning to emerge in Tim Harris's um, opening statement are definitely that People who use drugs are dirty and gross and um, they have no self control. And that April um, is a homicidal maniac who had lots of professional gun training and totally formulated this plan. And there's no, not one single mention of any of the physical abuse that she endured through the two and a half years leading up to the murder.
2: Yeah, I think the other thing that I see coming through is uh, any, any opportunity that he can to address a bad fact, he's injecting that she says, this is how it was, right? Because we know he's gonna really go after her credibility and we'll get to that in a couple of episodes, but she says this guys, let's see how much you can trust her when I'm done with her.
3: Yeah, okay, yeah. In a criminal trial, it's the state's job to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant committed the crime. Theoretically, the defense could enter no evidence at all and still win if the state fails to meet their burden. What ends up happening is the state calls a bunch of witnesses for the sole purpose of allowing them to introduce certain evidence. Physical evidence must be testified to and verified by a person who was there who can testify to where it's been, and where it's been since the crime was committed, and that's also called the chain of custody. Also, you have to have somebody basically what we call ground the evidence. If there's a picture or something of the scene, they have to be able to say that is a picture of the scene, and that is how I remember it looking at the time. So the state's case calls 10 separate police officers from the Tulsa Police Department who responded to the scene that day of the shooting. They range from B cops who responded to the 911 call, all the way up to 25-year veteran corporals who are homicide detectives. 95% of their testimony corroborates what April testified to and the story that she has stuck to for the last 25 years. The story that we told you of the events leading up to the crime and what happened in the hours before and after the shooting in episodes one and two. So essentially, to keep this podcast from being five hours long, uh, we broke up the state's case into three categories. Neutral witnesses, helpful witnesses, and detrimental witnesses. The first category, neutral witnesses, are mostly the officers who reported to the scene, aside from Laura Fadum. That's Officer Massick. We talked about her. She's the one that April meets when she's rollerblading out by the uh, executive Inn. Officer Lawson. Officer Gann and Officer Forrester, who all responded to the house, to the 911 call, and um, uh, Detective Lovall, who's on the homicide team, Detective Harris, who's on the homicide team, and Detective Nordike on the homicide team, and Detective Makinson and Detective Heim. So these are all police witnesses who essentially testified that the scene is exactly like April told us it was at the house the day of the shooting. When it comes to the helpful witnesses, We want to tell you about some of that testimony because it is truly unbelievable how much of the state's case relies on April's confession, but only when she was telling them something against her interest. The parts where April was talking about events when she might've been considered redeemable or even when she was fighting for her life, those parts of the story are downplayed or minimized. We've already told you about Luke Draffin and how he testified that Terry bribed him to stay away The other two witnesses in the helpful category are Dr. Stefano, the medical examiner, and sane nurse Kathy
2: Bell. We're going to start with Dr. Stefano. So Dr. Stefano is the very first witness called by the state, and he is the medical examiner for Tulsa County. So that means that he's a doctor, he's a medical doctor, but his whole job is to perform autopsies and determine causes of death. And in a case like this, Dr. Stefano would be examining a body and determining if there was like a bullet that was the cause of death, which one of the bullets was it. Um, he'll take the bullets out, he'll clean them, he'll give them to the firearms experts so that they can make sure they came from the same gun, all of those kinds of things. And there are some diagrams that he creates and I think we're gonna drop those also in the show notes to show you where these bullets entered Terry's body. And so Dr. Stefano testifies that he went to the house on the day of the murder and witnessed Terry in the basement. He saw the gunshot wounds and a lot of blood on Terry's face and head. So Terry was found laying on his back. He was shot eight times in the front of his body. And then, uh, you know, after looking at it at the scene, they take the body to the lab and he begins his examination, cleans the body. He does the routine things like take hair and nail samples. He does an X-ray, all of that. And you know he testifies that Terry was six feet and 180 pounds. Now, if you'll remember, April was about 5'5", 105 on the day of the shooting. Dr. Stefano he marks for the jury on the diagram where the bullets entered Terry's body. He states that the bullet that entered Terry's neck went into his spinal column and ricocheted down into the spinal cavity. He confirms that uh, the neck wound is an entry wound and later, Stefano states that this wound would have caused immediate paralysis. Although, in combination with the drugs that Terry was confirmed to be on, which are both meth and heroin by the tox report, it would have been unpredictable how his arms would have acted if they had been able to be motor-controlled or not. Stefano says that there is stippling on the face, which means that there was one shot on the face where the gun was close enough to cause stippling. And stippling is where you have bits of gunpowder gun that basically... Uh, it, it hits the skin and it causes a mark. In order for there to be stippling, you've got to be within one and a half to two feet of the person. Now, April has always said that she shot him, you know, he's two or three feet away when she begins shooting. Um, this is important, I think, because the hand wound and the neck wound, there's no stippling. She only gets to the stippling point um, w- with the wounds on his the left side of his face. So my crazy theory, Colleen, is that uh, Terry is lunging at her with his hand out and gets shot in the hand, shot on the right side of his neck that causes his face to turn. And then the rest of the shots land on the left side of his face as he's getting closer to her. Right? So there's no stippling in the hand or the neck. There's stippling on the face, but it is spread out, which Dr. De Stefano testifies that that means she's not exactly, she's not very close to him. She's not within mere inches. Because um, you would have a, a greater concentration of stippling the closer that you are. So to me, this says Terry's lunging, gets shot in the hand, shot in the neck, and then shot in the face. Um, that's my crazy theory, though.
3: I think that's, I also think that's what happened. Um, one of the problems, and we'll hear about this in a, in a few minutes, is that's actually not what April testified to. Um, and it's not what she told Detective Makinson in her video confession, but I have um, explanations for that too, once we get there. Um, so when we're listening to Dr. Stefano, I don't think there's anything in his direct examination that's super damning for April, except that he characterizes the hand wound as a defensive wound. So one of the bullets went through Terry's hand in sort of the knuckle area, as you heard, and it could be interpreted that the bullet that went into his hand comes up after the first shot goes in and instinctively people when they are being shot, they will lift their hands up in in like as a way of saying, oh no, like to stop the bullets from getting to their vital organs. And so um, this is how Tim Harris wants to characterize the hand wound. And so he asks Dr. DeStefano, would you consider that a defensive wound? And he says, yes. Um, but then that is one interpretation. And and yet when we get to the cross-examination, um, April's attorney, Chris Lyons, actually asks him do you know for sure which order the bullets went into the body? And he says, no, I don't know which order. And so he says, don't you think it's possible that the hand wound wasn't a defensive wound if it was one of the first bullets? And Dr. Stefano says, yes, that could be what happened. So I think it's really confusing for the jury to have somebody who's so um, technical and official um, speaking in such certain terms about like he also names the bullets He names the bullet wounds on the diagram like bullet wound one, bullet wound two, and that can be really confusing because it's like automatically I'm thinking that one went in first, that one went in second, but that's just for ease of reference for him when he's looking at the diagram. That doesn't mean that's the order that they went in or were shot, and so this kind of gets, I think that this testimony gets kind of mischaracterized um, pretty easily by the state to say that... um, he gets shot in the neck first, gets paralyzed immediately, goes down, and then she continues shooting him while he's on the ground. And he's saying, please call an ambulance like that. I just do not feel like that is what happened. It's not in, it's not consistent with everything we know about Terry's behavior leading up to this. And it's not consistent with everything we know about April's behavior either.
2: Yeah, and I, I think really Chris Lyons does a good job of cross-examination of, of Stefano, And I agree that the technical stuff can get... Difficult for a jury to follow, um, just because you might think you're explaining something in a way that can be understood because you know it so well, but it doesn't really translate that uh, that well. So yeah, I mean, I think I, I the, he gets he does get to Stefano to walk it back, saying that yeah, that hand wound could have could potentially have come first, and that could also be if he was lunging at him. The other issue that I think he gets out of De Stefano that we haven't touched on yet is that. Um, Because of the angle of the bullet that goes into the neck and through the spinal cord, um, it's a downward angle. And we know that Terry's taller than April, right? So um, the state is going to, you're going to see this later. The state's going to flip this and say that Terry was sitting down and playing the guitar when she just viciously shot him. Or or he's lunging at her, as April has stated consistently. He's lunging at her. Trying to grab the gun. Trying to get the gun. And he's bent down. And so the gun, the angle of that is able to get in at that downward angle. So I think Lyons does a good job of getting that testimony out of De Stefano.
3: Yeah, and now what we would like to establish here if we were the defense is that he had his hands up lunging at her to strangle her or take the gun away and threaten her life because he had been threatening her life all morning saying he was going to kill her and rape her. So he's coming at her and our version of this if we were defense, would be that he's coming at her and actually the first shot goes off through the hand. Um, but that's not going to bleed all that much because it's a hand wound. Um, and so if you're April and you're in this adrenaline-based haze, you're going to see the bigger gush of blood that comes from the neck and think possibly that that was the first bullet that hit. And that's what she ends up testifying to um, when she talks to Makinson in the confession, she says, But she's not sure, right? It's uncertain. It's like, I think that the first shot went into the neck, but I don't know. And then that ends up getting twisted and kind of saying like, okay, the first, she even says the first bullet went through the neck, which I don't think even she felt like was true. It's just where she saw the blood first.
2: Yeah, I think that to me, that makes a lot of sense. You know, and then we have this statement by her in her confession of, and I think I remember him saying, I'm paralyzed, call 911, right? Um, I don't know. What do you make of that, Colleen?
3: Oh, gosh. So I think that her saying that is is—it's something that she ends up saying to Laura Fadum first, and then she says it again to Detective Makinson at the videotaped confession. And what she says is, I shot him. And then he told me, call 911, I'm paralyzed. And then, but I was already still shooting. But what she's really saying is, in the moment, I was just pulling the trigger. I didn't have any thoughts. But when I was thinking about it afterwards and trying to remember how this happened, I recalled him saying, call 911, I need an ambulance. But what this gets misconstrued as is, bang, call 911. I need an ambulance. Pause. Bang, 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 bang. And it's like, that is not at all what would happen in a situation like this. It's like, you're just shooting, you're shooting, you're shooting. You're trying to save your own life. Totally. And then you might remember, like, I think I said this to you the other day. It's like when someone's talking to you and you're not really listening and They're like, wait, dude, you're not listening to anything I said. What did I just say? And you can kind of like your passive listening brain can kind of be like, oh, yeah, I remember you said this, Um, but you weren't like actively listening at the time it was happening. So I think it's kind of like that, like she wasn't aware of that happening during the shooting, but she remembered it happened later.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And so kind of the other thing I think that we haven't touched on yet is, is that DiStefano Establishes um, as April has told the detectives and is going to testify to that Terry tests positive for meth and he tests positive for partic- these particular like molecules that um, can only come from heroin. So um, he he was definitely on both drugs the night of, and we know that April tests negative for everything um, on the on the morning of when she gets her urinalysis done. So I you know I don't know I. It, the DiStefano just, for me, corroborates completely what April's been saying.
3: He also talks a lot about the track marks. Um, and I went back and looked at this today, and he testifies that there were track marks between Terry's toes, um, on his upper thighs, in his elbow, um, on his arms. Everywhere that you could find a vein on this body was covered in track marks from injecting intravenous drugs. And um, I think that just further kind of solidifies this ongoing narrative that April has told everybody, which is I was I was for a year before this trying to get him help, help addiction help and nobody would believe me that he was using. And so you finally a little bit are vindicated when you hear the state's medical examiner.
2: His legs are covered, man. Covered. Yeah. And also the state never asks about whether Terry could have been sitting down in a chair at the time he was shot, right? They're going to inject this idea at the very end of the trial during their closing. They're going to suddenly inject the idea that um, Terry was just sitting there cleaning a guitar. Uh, And it just, none, none of the scientific experts that are called are ever questioned on it. I think probably because there's nothing to support that.
3: Well, and if you're the state here and your primary theory of the case is that your victim was innocently sitting in a chair strumming or cleaning a guitar when the assailant walked into the room and started shooting, and you can corroborate that theory with with the evidence from the scene, this is the time to do it because this is the medical examiner who on a rare occasion, actually he says he doesn't usually go to the scene of of a murder, but he was there that day saw the scene as when he arrived and this would be the time to elicit the testimony Dr. DeStefano in your medical opinion do you think the fact that his leg being bent means that he was sitting down or standing up from a chair um I just think those are questions that could have easily been asked especially because you have him um established as an expert already
2: yeah so I think it's telling that they don't but um, so Stefano, my opinion, really corroborates April's, the physical evidence that April uh, has testified to as far as the facts that happened. So um, last thoughts on Stefano? I think,
3: I don't know, it's just, it's really telling that the crime scene evidence, which would be the thing that would be the nail in your coffin if you weren't really someone who was claiming self-defense and you were just trying to make that up later, you can't fake the crime scene evidence. Even if you're even if you running around trying to stage something, which I don't think she was, it would be very difficult to stage a scene where you could legitimize and legitimately claim self-defense. And this actually does do that. And yet still, we don't see the defense capitalizing on that. Yeah, I think that's
2: a good point. I think that's it's a good point. Um, another witness in the helpful category is uh, C- nurse Kathy Bell. She's one of the sexual assault nurses that performs an examination on April um, on the morning of the shooting. One of the things that that she does on the stand or that she's asked to do on the stand is to take out April's clothes from their evidence bags, uh, hold them up for the jury and describe them. And she notes that there are rips in April's pants, one inside the right knee and one up closer to the inner thigh. Um, Again, corroborating the fact that her pants were ripped down uh, by Terry. And she also talks quite extensively about the physical injuries that April had.
3: So April had bruising on her hip and also on the arm, on her head, and there are several pictures um, of that on her neck too, underneath the chin. There are two vaginal tears, one at six o'clock and one at 10 o'clock if the vagina is a metaphorical clock face. So like for anyone who is still thinking, oh, she just made up this whole narrative about what happened before the shooting and is crying rape so she could get away with premeditated murder. Hey, I see you. And I also want you to know that the rape is 100 percent substantiated by um, external evidence, physical evidence that was collected during the stain exam. Um, She had bruising and swollen hands. Her knuckles were red and there's no other explanation for those occurrences of her bodily injuries um, other than, I guess, if you're a mega misogynist and you want to say they had very rough sex that she enjoyed. Which,
2: hey, if you're a mega misogynist and you're still with us on this podcast, I'm glad you're here. We want you here, buddy. We want to hear from you. Stick, <laughs> stick with us. <laughs> Do you want to read this exchange? Yes. Okay. So
3: there is a small exchange between D.A. Harris and Kathy Bell that I think illuminates his overall demeanor during witness questioning. Um, so Harris asks, so the narrative given by her didn't affect your opinion one way or the other? A. Answer. Correct. Question. Okay. And why is that? Answer. Because I'm not going to make an opinion as to whether she was sexually assaulted or not. Question. Well, what are you there to do then while you're performing your sexual assault examination if it's not to formulate some kind of opinion? Answer, to document the history that they give, to collect the evidence, and to treat medically. Over and over again, D.A. Harris tries to get Nurse Bell to say that April wasn't really raped, was she? But you can't really say that. Coming from this, that this was from a rape, and Nurse Bell pushes back on him very substantially and says, I'm not here to tell anybody whether or not she was raped. I write down what she told me, and I submit the evidence. It's not my job to question a sexual assault survivor about whether or not they experienced rape, and it's not yours either, sir. Here's a juror from the case stating her thoughts about Tim Harris's demeanor and questioning.
1: I didn't like Tim Harris. I didn't like his demeanor in the courtroom. He was a bully and I much preferred when his assistant, Rebecca Nightingale, who became a judge then, I much preferred when she was doing the questioning because I just didn't, I didn't like his approach. Ironically, you know, he, he, he portrays himself as such a good Christian, all that kind of stuff. And I thought it doesn't match with the persona I'm seeing in the corporate which is a bully, you know. Had I had the chance, I would not have voted for him because I didn't like him. But it didn't mean that that their case was weak. And I I liked the defense attorney better, but he didn't make a compelling case.
2: So you've heard Tim Harris's opening statement in April's murder trial and two key helpful witnesses: Dr. De Stefano, the medical examiner, and Kathy Bell, the same nurse. Next week on Panic Button, join us for Ninja in the Night, Part 2, where you'll hear evidence from the most detrimental witnesses in the state's closing argument, which is full of surprises. Thanks for listening.
3: Panic Button is a co-production of Oklahoma Appleseed Center for Law and Justice and Leslie Briggs. We're your hosts, Colleen McCarty
2: and Leslie Briggs.
3: Our theme music is Velvet Rope by Guillaume. The production team is Leslie Briggs and Rusty Rowe. We're recorded at Bison and Bean Studio in Tulsa. Special thanks to Lynn Worley, Amanda Ross, and Ashlyn Faulkner for their work on this case. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic abuse, use a safe computer and contact the National Domestic Violence Hotline at thehotline.org or call 1-800-799-7233. Help others find our show by leaving us a rating and writing a review. Follow us at OK underscore Appleseed across all social platforms. You can subscribe right now in the Apple Podcasts app by clicking on our podcast logo and then hit the subscribe button. If you want to continue the conversation with other listeners, please join our Panic Button podcast community and book clubs. Join for free at bit.ly slash 3 nr H-O-A-C. Thanks so much for listening.